We're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 1 here in just a minute. On a beautiful summer morning, 60 years ago, Jim Honeycutt, who was familiar with water, stepped into his small 12-foot aluminum fishing boat powered by a 7.5-horsepower outboard motor to enjoy a ride on the relatively calm waters five miles upstream from the mighty Niagara Falls. Two of his friend's children were with him, 7-year-old Roger Woodward and his 17-year-old sister Deanne. While the unsuspecting trio were enjoying the calm waters, the boat was slowly, slowly drifting, drifting toward a catastrophe. But even the man in charge of the boat seemed to sense no danger. They drifted under the Grand Island Bridge as nearby boaters stared at them incredulously. Soon they were in swifter waters, only one mile from the brink of the thunderous Niagara. The little boat had drifted beyond the point of no return, and the battle for survival had begun. Awakened to danger, Jim raced toward shore, but the motor hit a rock, sheared a pen, and began roaring out of control. He shut down the outboard, grabbed the oars, yelling at Deanne to put on her life jacket. Being swept along at 40 miles per hour, the boat was hit by a large wave and a second one that capsized it. Deanne clung desperately to its side until being thrashed by the rocky rapids, she let go and swam frantically toward land. John Hayes, a New Jersey truck driver, was a tourist that day visiting Goat Island which lies between the U.S. and Horseshoe Falls. The crowd saw the strange sight of a boat sweep by. But John instinctively sensed danger, and he began scanning the waters. And then he saw a 17-year-old girl fighting for her life. He began screaming, Girl, come to me! The Ann heard the voice, saw no one, but followed the sound. Screaming and stretching, Hayes reached as far beyond the protective railing as possible, their hands touched. Deanne grabbed his thumb. As Hayes struggled to pull her out, another tourist raced to the water's edge, and grasping the girl, the two men dragged her from the current 15 feet from the brink of the Roaring Falls. Jim Honeycutt and the boat plunged over the precipice and were lost on the rocks below. What happened to Roger, little Roger Woodward? Wearing an adult life jacket, bobbed through the rapids, being tossed in the air and crashing on the rocks. Though stunned by a blow to the head, he could see people running along the shore, yet no one was coming to help him. Roger was unaware of Niagara. He shot through the last rapid, and then with a mighty thrust, the boy was heaved through the air and disappeared in the darkness of a gray mist. Descending 167 feet. And thrown clear of the enormous rocks below, Roger plunged beneath the water, only to bob to the surface 60 feet from a boat called Made of the Mist, and was rescued. That's a true story. And it happened on July 9, 1960, to a Pennsylvania family from Greensburg in Westmoreland County. Now, what captured my imagination when I read the story was the the words that said this, slowly, slowly drifting, drifting toward a catastrophe. I want you to look with me in First Samuel chapter 1. Verse 1. Now, there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim 
of Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerohim, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. In the opening chapter of 1 Samuel, we're immediately confronted with a cast of characters and the plot that unhappily plays out. Now, Elkanah, he's one of the characters, is a Levite from Ephraim. He's of the Levitical tribe, but he lives in the tribe of Ephraim, north of Jerusalem. He has two wives, Hannah and Penina. Now, polygamy is not sanctioned in the scripture. But God does tell us the way it really was for for these cast of characters. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He, He tells us the way it really happened, the way they lived their lives. But he doesn't at all sanction a polygamous relationship. That's Elkanah. Eli, another character, is the priest of God at the tabernacle. The tabernacle is in Shiloh, north of Jerusalem. He has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. They are Egyptian names. Hophni means tadpole. Now, you've got to wonder who would name their kid tadpole. I think I'd rebel, too, if I had a name like Tadpole. (laughs) You ever ever listen to what Hollywood actors and actresses name their kids? Don't follow their example in many ways. Blue Ivy, Audio Science, Kid, KYD, Your Majesty, Pilot Inspector. Now, who would name their child Pilot Inspector? Some Hollywood actor. <clears throat> Sage Moonblood, Blue Angel, Blue Bell, Moxie Crime Fighter, Rocket, Satchel, Moon Unit Zappa. Now, that's the, that's the daughter of Frank Zappa. He was a, a rock performer and was caught up in the life of drugs and et cetera. Maybe he was on drugs when he named Moon Unit. Two, T-U, Tomorrow. Ocean, Memphis Eve, Apple, Hammer, <laughs> just all kind of weird names that you can just do a, just a search and you can find you can throw those in a basket and find that many more and many more with weird names. Well, this guy was named Tadpole. That's uh, Hophni. And then Phineas. Phineas was a Nubian. The word means Nubian. The Nubians were a dark skinned people that were uh, South of Egypt, north of Sudan, the countries today. So he was probably darker than most. And so it was, he received the name Phineas. And then there was Samuel, another character in this drama. Samuel. Now, that's my personal favorite. <laughs> and his name means heard of God or gift of God. So that mom and dad did, I think, a good job naming the child. So those are the characters, and, and let's set the stage a little bit. <clears throat> Hannah is loved by her husband, Elkanah, but she is barren, and hence she's unhappy. 
She wants a child in the worst way. Elkanah's other wife, Penina, she's not barren. She has multiple kids, and she provokes Hannah to jealousy. And strife was just a part of the household. Yearly, this family would go to the tabernacle in Shiloh, 15 miles north, to worship and sacrifice to God. And there at the tabernacle is where they meet Eli. And Eli's the high priest of God in the nation of Israel. And on this particular day, Hannah was pleading with God for a son. She's, she's in the, at the tabernacle and she's praying silently and she wants a son. Now, have you ever just been burdened and you prayed, but you prayed silently? You didn't utter the words audibly where people could hear, but man, your, your mouth might even be moving and you're praying and you're earnest about it. And that's what Hannah's doing. And Eli sees this. And he takes it that she is drunk and rebukes her for it. And here's the way she responded in verse 15. You can look there. Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I am a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Count not thine handmaid for a daughter of Belial, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken hitherto. Then Eli answered and said, go in peace and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And she said, and and she said, let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way and did eat and her countenance was no more sad. She had a promise from the man of God that God is going to answer her request. And he did. Hannah had a son. And named him Samuel. And when the child was weaned and able to be away from his mother, they brought him back to the tabernacle to present him to the Lord. And if you read the first ten verses of 1 Samuel 2, this is Hannah's prayer as she gives her son back to God. It's a precious soliloquy of a godly mother making good on her promise to God. Elkanah and his family return home. 15 miles south, and leave Samuel in the tabernacle to serve the Lord. Now, there's a strong contrast between the two families in this cast of characters. I I want us to see the contrast between Elkanah's son and Eli's sons. There's stark contrast. The drifting in Eli's family is very clear to see. They had drifted. Eli, as the high priest of God, has drifted. His sons have drifted. Something is happening in their life, and they, as a family, are moving away from God. Look in verse 30 of chapter 2. Wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever But now the Lord saith, be it far from me, for them that honor will I honor, and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God had determined he was going to remove his hand of blessing from Eli and his family, and it was going somewhere else. Now, what were Eli's sons like? Look in verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were sons of Belial. They knew not the Lord. Now, that's strange. These guys are priests. And the priest's custom 
with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant came while the flesh was seething with a flesh hook of three teeth in his hand. And he struck it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the flesh hook brought up, the priest took for himself. So they did in Shiloh or Shiloh until all the Israelites that came thither. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest servant came and said to the man that sacrificed, give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden flesh of thee, but raw and And if any man said unto him, let them not fail to burn the fat presently and then take as much as I soul desire, then he would answer him, nay, but thou shalt give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Wherefore, the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Now, these men are called sons of Belial. In your notes, I want you to fill this in. Here's what that means. These these men were good for nothing or worthless. Hophni and Phinehas were sons of Belial. They were worthless men. They were good for nothing. Paul in 2 Corinthians in the New Testament uses the word Belial as a proper noun for Satan. Satan is the worthless one. And here's two guys that are identified with being worthless. They didn't even know God. These were in the priestly family. If anybody should have known God, it should have been the priests. Because they were the ones that the nation would come to and the priests would go to God. They were they mediated. But they didn't even know God. Though they were in the priestly tribe. For Hophni and Phinehas, their position as priests was something that was only hereditary. It wasn't experiential. They didn't know God from experience. They only inherited the office of a priest. That didn't please the Lord. Now, if you read the book of Leviticus, and, and Leviticus is that book of the Old Testament. You've you got to work your way through, right? Filled with law and instruction. But you have to work through, but there's, there's good instruction in there for us. Here's what you're going to find as you work through Leviticus. A lot of laws concerning the offerings. They brought, God's people brought burnt offerings to the Lord. And in Leviticus, the burnt offerings were wholly consumed by fire on the altar. They also brought sin offerings. The sin offerings were eaten by the priests. They also brought peace offerings. Now, the peace offering was divided in three ways. One part belonged to God. That was the fat was burned to the Lord in sacrifice. The second part of the peace offering belonged to the priests. That would be the breast and the shoulder was then divided out. And that was given to the priest for his sustenance. And then the third part of the priest offering belonged to the person that was bringing the sacrifice. And that part went into a cauldron and it was boiled And then to be taken home by the one making the offering. So God got his part. The priests got their part specified in the law. And the person bringing the offering, their part went into the pot with seed. And then they took that home to feed their family. But Eli's sons came up with a different custom to add to God's law. 
And here's what they came up with. They made a three-pronged flesh hook. And they would go to the pot when the, the meat is being seethed, and they would take the, the flesh hook and they would stab it into the pot and pull it out. And whatever meat was on the, pot, on, on the, the flesh hook, they took for themselves. In addition to what was already subdivided to them. Also in verse 15, if you look there with me, in addition to taking the meat with the flesh hook, it says in verse 15, also, in addition to the flesh hook meat, also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant came, so they would send their servant, and he came and said unto the man that sacrificed, give flesh to roast for the priest, for he will not have sodden or boiled flesh of thee, but raw. And if any man said unto him, let, let them not fail to burn the, the fat presently and then take as much as I soul desire. Then he would answer him, nay, but thou shalt give it me now. And if not, I will take it by force. And so here the, the, the offering, the fat was to go to God. First, then some to the priest and then some to the one making the sacrifice. Well, they wanted the flesh hook meat, which belonged to whom? The person making the sacrifice. So they're going to steal some of that person's. But it was even worse than that. Before before God got his part. They wanted some of the some of the meat. And when the people of Israel objected and said, let let the fat be burned first. Nay. They didn't want God to get his part first. They wanted to get their part first. No way, they said. You know, the offerings, the peace offering was supposed to be God first, priest second, yourself third. Now, we have a little acronym that we use. JOY, which stands for Jesus first, others, yourself. That's the same that's happening here with the peace offering. God, then others, then yourself. But that was not Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas was me first. So put that in your blank. Me first. Then God. Then the people. And then of the people's portion, they stole some of that as well. I mean, it was so bad. They said, if you don't do what we say, we're going to take it by force from you. And you know the effect it had on the people? They hated the offering of the Lord. So God said their sin was great. Because they people, they made people hate bringing an offering to God. Now the priest should have been such a, that you come with your offering and you give it to the priest. They do exactly what they're supposed to do. And it should be a joyous time. You, you make your peace with God. You honor God. You take care of God's priestly tribe. And then you go home with a portion to feed your family. It should have been a joyous time. But they hated it because of the way the priests behaved. In contrast to that, you have Samuel. Completely different kind of person. Look in verse 18. 1 Samuel 2.18. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, being a child, 
girded with a, a linen ephod. Look in verse 21. And the Lord visited Hannah so, she, so that she conceived and she bare three sons and two daughters. That's after Samuel. And the child Samuel grew before the Lord. And look in verse 26. The child Samuel grew on and in favor with both the Lord, with the Lord and also with men. So here you have these evil priests, Hophni and Phinehas, that made people hate worshiping God. And then you have Samuel. Samuel grew in the Lord. He grew in favor with God. He grew in favor with with the people. They saw a, a difference in that man. Eli's legacy. Eli's family had totally forsaken God. They didn't even know God. Though they were priests at the tabernacle, they were corrupt in their heart. We didn't read the whole passage. These guys lived in fornication. They were immoral men. Verses 22 and following tell us. Can I say this, folks? God is serious. He is really serious about how we live. Waywardness results in discipline by God. Sometimes, sometimes the discipline by God is, uh, is active. He just steps in and actively punishes when we do wrong. Sometimes the punishment is built into the sin. You commit the sin, there's punishment attached to that. And there's also blessing that's attached to other behaviors. Proverbs tells us this, there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. A certain behavior, though the person thinks it's right, that very behavior brings a way of death. It is just that the consequences of that sin lead us astray. In Psalm 1, the scripture says, and he, talking about the righteous man, he shall be like a tree planted by rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither. And whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. There is a way of living righteously. And God ties to that behavior. He ties to it, a, the righteous behavior, a blessed life. And fruit, the blessings of good fruit. Out of the blue comes a messenger of God. Look with me in verse 27. So this messenger shows up and there there came a man of God unto Eli and said unto him, thus saith the Lord. Did I plainly appear unto the house of thy father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? And the answer is yes, he did. And did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, that's the tribe of Levi, to offer upon mine altar and to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? Yes. And did I give unto the house of thy father all the offerings made by fire of the children of Israel? God is saying to Eli, didn't I do all of this for you and for your family in this priestly tribe? This you have had a place of privilege. God gave them offerings for the maintenance of the tabernacle. They didn't go out and do the kind of manual labor that other tribes did. They did the service of God at the tabernacle and God blessed them for it. And he provided for them. And and he's saying the man of God says, did did not God share all all this with you? Then verse 29, wherefore, kick ye at my sacrifice and mine offering, which I have commanded in my habitation. 
Eli's sons were like well-fed cattle. And they got fed to the full and then they kicked. They kicked at they kicked at God, they kicked at his sacrifice, they kicked at those that brought sacrifice. What dishonor they brought. And they were to learn that there is a payday someday for their behavior. So down in verse 30 again, wherefore the Lord God of Israel saith, I, I said indeed that thy house and the house of thy father should walk before me forever. But now the Lord saith, be it far from me. All right, no more, no more. For them that honor me will I honor and they that despise me shall be lightly esteemed. You're not going to get blessing, Eli. Your sons are not going to get blessing because they're in the Levitical tribe. It is not going to come by way of inheritance. Inheritance. It's going to come by way of behavior and blessing. Obedience. So his family, who could have been priests perpetually, disqualified themselves. And then it says in verse 31, Behold, the days come, I'll cut off thine arm and the arm of thy father's house, and there shall not be an old man in thine house. The priesthood is removed. Want to fill that in? It's removed from Eli's descendants. And his descendants are going to experience premature death. Verse 33, And the man of thine whom I shall not cut off from mine altar shall be to consume thine eyes and to grieve thine heart, and all the increase of thine house shall die in the flower of their age. So, so here's a promise from God that Eli's descendants are going to be cut down in the prime of their life, in the flower of their age. And it says in verse 34, they're going to die in, in one day. Eli's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will perish the same day. Now, what we have here, folks, is God's punishment on a man who raised his children to be rebels, to be cheats. To be immoral and thereby hurting the spiritual life of a a nation. You know, this is really tough stuff when you read this. This is it ought to make all of us stop and pause. There's there's demands that God places on his children. And he says in the New Testament, as well as the old, he says, be ye therefore holy for I am what? Holy. Be holy for I'm holy. That's what he expected of his priests. That's what he expects of us. God wants us to be holy. Now, he doesn't want us to be holier now. And there's a big difference. Holier now is an attitude. It's really a bad attitude. Like we think we're better than somebody else. God doesn't. He does not need. People with holier now attitudes, but he does need people that are holy before him. So a holy person, they seek to live a careful Christian life, a good life. They live right, not perfect. They live right. They seek to please God with all their life. God has control of every area of their life. And when we sin and we do, then we're quick to confess it and to forsake it, to make it right with God and to turn our back on it. And God forgives and we move on. And when we sin again, we're quick to confess it and turn our back on it. And that's all part of living holy. Living holy doesn't mean we live sinless. It means we sin less, 
and less as we grow spiritually. But when we do wrong, we're quick to turn away from it and confess it to God and do what God says. Second Corinthians chapter six says not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness. What communion hath light with darkness? What concord or agreement hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I'm going to dwell in them and walk in them. I'm going to be their God and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them and be a separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing and I will receive you. I'll be a father unto you. You shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. God says, come out. You, you come with me. You live holy with me. Don't live in sin. Don't partner with those that drag my name into the depths of sin. You come out and be separate. And I'm going to bless you. I suggest to us all this morning that consecrated people, well, they live consecrated lives. They live a different life. And it's God first, not me first. It's not the Hoffna and Phineas approach. Me first, God second, others last. No, it's God first. People that are consecrated to God put God first in their lives. Now, as you study in, in the Bible, the people of consecration, you're going to find different groups. Uh, one group of the Levites, consecrated, special to God. You find Nazarites. They had a special consecration and they were to live wholly for God. Things that they should do and things that they shouldn't do. That, the, that was above what the average person was required. You find the Rechabites. Ever study the Rechabites? In Jeremiah chapter 35, the Rechabites lived by a higher standard. And they were, they were so committed to God that God used the Rechabites as an illustration to the Israelites in the dying days of the kingdom of Israel. In the dying days, God used the Rechabites as an object lesson to teach the nation of Israel what it means to be faithful. And Israel was not faithful. So these Rechabites, uh, God told Jeremiah, get the Rechabites, bring them into the temple and tell them, here, put, put bowls of wine in front of them and tell them, drink wine. And God knew that they wouldn't do it. And so he brings them in, he puts the wine in front of them, and says to the Rechabites, here, drink wine. And they said, not so. And then they told why they wouldn't do that. Because God told our father, Rechab, and, and you follow it on the calendar. For 200 years, they've been following what they were told to do. And God knew that you could not entice these people to do wrong. These are really people of consecration, fully consecrated to God. Oh, there's another group in the Bible. Not just the Levites, not just the Nazarites, not just the Rechabites. There's another group. They're called Christians. Christians. To be consecrated people and do what God says. You know, it's easy to sound spiritual for a preacher and anybody else. It's easy to sound spiritual. Uh, Eli, in the passage, sounded real spiritual. He was not. Same book. King Saul, he sounded spiritual. He was not. You know, it's, it's a heart thing. From the heart, we're holy in how we live for God. Now, these men 
that we're looking at, Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, they drifted far from God. God is, he's, he was more important at one time in their life than what he is now. They drifted away. So I want you to take your notes, and I'm going to give some warnings about spiritual drifting. And any one of us is subject to this. So we have to be careful. Drifting is dangerous because it happens slowly. I want you to fill it in, slowly. Drifting happens slowly. How does a Christian get to the point where they stop living for Christ? And the answer is gradually. They give up things slowly. They row in the boat of life. They stop rowing. They drift under the Grand Island Bridge and they're in trouble because they've coasted along and they started drifting. Number two, drifting is subtle because it is usually not observed by those who are drifting. If you're moving with the waters around you, things all seem to be calm because you're just you're right along with the water. You're being carried along with the water. And it's easy. It's just really easy not to detect when there's drifting going on. Number three, drifting is much sooner realized by those who are not drifting, such as those standing on the shore, standing on solid ground. They can tell if a boat is drifting more easily than the one that's in the boat. If someone observes you drifting and they throw out a rope by way of a, an exhortation or a warning, love that person. Don't throw the rope back. Love that person. If they see some drifting, appreciate them. Don't get mad at them. They see something in our life and, and take that serious. Now, they might be right or wrong, but don't get mad at them if they, see, if they think they see drifting and they care enough to throw out an exhortation to try to help. Four, drifting can be pleasurable because it requires no effort and it makes no waves. Would you rather walk uphill or downhill? <laughs> Would you rather get on a bike and bike to the top of the mountain or start at the top of the mountain and coast down to the bottom? Years ago, we took our single adults on this bike, this bike uh, hike up in the Poconos, and I was told that it's like 25 miles downhill. The person that told me that lied. <laughs> I was really looking forward to it, just coasting along and enjoy. coasting downhill is easy. Would you rather walk up the stairs or down the stairs? Sometimes, well, all the time when I visit in the hospital and I, I always take the stairs. And when I go to Pottstown Hospital to visit a church member, six stories, I, I go up six, 12 flights of stairs. And when I get up to the sixth floor, I'm... <laughs> But you know, when I walk down 30 minutes later, I don't get to the bottom. It's easier going down than it is going up. It's easier rowing downstream than it is rowing upstream. And years ago, Susan and I went to Kauai, Hawaii, and we were on the north shore of the island. We were celebrating our 25th wedding anniversary, and we got kayaks, two kayaks, and we rowed up the Hanalei River. Miles. And, and you know, when we quit rowing, you could, you could look at a, a tree on the 
on the shore. And, you know, those kayaks, they kind of cut right through the water. You ever been kayaking? We were just cutting through the, wa- the water. And when we quit rowing, we started going backwards. You know, we slowed and stopped. And then we started moving in reverse. It requires no effort to drift. Is it easier to get good grades or to let them go down? <laughs> make A's or make F's, which is easier. I mean, in every area of life, it's, it's easier just to float along. But that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is not drifting. The Christian life is not just floating along. Can I give you some, some phrases from the Bible? Fight the good fight. Be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Endure hardness as a good soldier. Run so that ye may obtain the prize. God tells us to seek or to sow and to water and to reap and to put on the whole armor of God and to pray without ceasing and to study to show ourselves approved unto God. I mean, all those phrases, effort, 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 effort. The Christian life takes effort. We, we really have to work at it. But the, the reward is great as we do that. Drifting is especially dangerous when the boats around us are drifting also. That's why you can't be out in the middle of the ocean and see another boat and try to get your reference point from that other boat because that other boat's moving too. You have to have something stationary. God says, but they that measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Because they could be drifting as well. Not why. Safety is being anchored. And we have an anchor. The word of God is an anchor. Jesus Christ is an anchor. And when we are anchored to Christ, then we can we can. We won't drift as easily. When we're anchored to him. The slide is gradual. It's always away from God. Six. Drifting is dangerous because it's difficult, perhaps, perhaps impossible in some cases to regain ground. Sometimes we can drift beyond a point where though we can get our sins forgiven, we'll never escape the consequences of what we created. There can be a point of no return. So some uh, some tools in combating drift. Number one, the Bible. It is the anchor of our stability, the Bible. So I would suggest all of us. Cling to that Bible. Read that Bible. Follow it. Keep doing that. And when others stop doing that, you keep doing that. We, we need to, it needs to be our anchor. It is our anchor. And it will stop us from sliding. A written testimony, number two. What has God done in your life? Write it down. Record what God's done. Don't let memory fade the things that God has done in your life. Write down what he's doing. Write your testimony of how God changed your life. And then use that. Use that in witnessing. Use that with your kids. Use that with your grandkids. They need to hear what God did in your life. A written statement of convictions. You know what you can do? Open your Bible to the fly leaf of the Bible and write down some things you believe. And keep it right there in your Bible, written in the Bible, so it never gets lost. And then if you start sliding, 
If you've written down some of the things you believe by way of convictions and holiness and you start sliding, you, can, you, you have it right there. You can see if you're sliding. A vibrant walk with Jesus Christ, obedience to God's word on a personal level, awareness that drifting occurs, a refusal to make excuses for the drift. Don't don't make excuses. Being a God pleaser, not a people pleaser, a mixture of trials and blessings that helps us. Trials help us keep our hand firmly in God's hand. We need we need all of the experiences of life, which means a lot of blessing, which means trials along the way. We need that. It, it lets us get to the end of ourselves and we realize how limited we are and we want to cling on to God and we should cling on to God. <clears throat> you know, when you're, you live long enough in your Christian life, you, you see drift. And you may see it in your own life, but you may see it in people that drifted away and never came back. Let that not be us. Let's not us drift. And if we've slid a little bit and we're not where we were spiritually at one time, we've slidden away from Christ, let's come back. Let's come back. Place that is the center of his blessing. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Your head bowed, eyes closed. The message this morning was for Christians. <clears throat> Maybe you don't even know the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior. You've not come to know God in a personal way. But you might be looking for him. I believe people, I know, not just believe, I know that people at times in their life, they're looking for God. They don't know God, but they're looking for God. I sat by a lady yesterday on a plane flying out of Florida. And as my habit has become, when I sit by somebody, I immediately introduce myself. Because if I don't, it gets awkward. The longer the flight goes, it gets more awkward. So I'll just sit down and look at him and say, hi, my name's Sam. What's your name? And it wasn't long, and this lady was teary-eyed. And I told her that I was a pastor, and she started nodding her head, and she says, I, I thought so. And, and, and I, I, her name's Amy. She lives in Grand Rapids. I said, Amy, do you believe that God puts people in your path to touch your life because he wants to get a message to you? She says, I believe that. I believe that too. Now maybe you are here for the first time or maybe you don't know God is your Savior. But He's got you here now and He wants to touch your life because He wants you to know Him. If you do know Him, there was a day that you trusted Christ as Savior and you are absolutely sure that heaven's your home. And you can testify to that. You may not remember the date, but you remember the experience, maybe where you were at. If you say, yes, Pastor Elstock, I know that I'm saved. I am sure of that. As a testimony to God and to me, could you just quietly raise your hand where you're sitting? 
I know that I'm saved. That's a whole lot of us. Thank you. You can put your hand down. Maybe you couldn't raise your hand. But in your heart, you would say, I sure would like to know him. Would you pray for me? I will pray for you. I would never call your name out loud if I knew it. But if you feel that God is touching your heart and and you don't know him yet, but you want to know him, I'd like to pray for you. And if you just quietly raised your hand where you're sitting, I will pray for you. As God speak into your heart, someone, anybody, where you're not sure you're saved, but you want to know. And Christian, God wants to touch our hearts as well. Let's cling to him. Let's make sure we don't drift in our life. We're the loser when we drift. And we gain when we cling to Him. 